With me, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And as you're doing so, I'll just take this moment to thank you for praying, uh, for the cards and the text messages and the phone calls and the offers to help. Uh, For those of you who have had back issues, you know how humbling it is to feel so helpless. So it's been a less than fun couple of weeks. It's good to be back with you. Looking at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1 this morning, Revelation 3 verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out, blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would take it and plant it deep in our hearts. Lord, do what only you can do. That is, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us understanding. Cause us to listen today to your Spirit's instruction through the preaching of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we have moved through the book of Revelation, this singular letter has these seven messages to the seven churches in Asia. They would have all received this one letter. They would have all heard the messages to each of the other churches for their own benefit, even though the specific message was addressed to each specific church and the specific needs that they had. And so it's interesting to consider as we've walked through the, what relates to us. You know, there have been some things that we've looked at that we kind of identify as maybe common in our, you know, the broader church in America or maybe within evangelicalism. Or there may be things that we see even in our own church, things that we need to address, things that we need to listen to. And for me, the church at Sardis, it just kind of stands out as quite similar in many ways to the church in America today. And I'm speaking specifically of the evangelical church in America. As we watch what happens in our own time, we see that a number of churches have form and function. They have a reputation of being alive. They have activities and programs, and they attract crowds. And yet, is that what makes them alive? Now, that's not a knock against those things. I'm all for activities. We enjoy those things. We enjoy having programs and we enjoy fellowship together. Crowds are a good thing. It's good to see more and more people coming back. We don't uh, make light of any of that. But what I'm pointing out here is that those aren't necessarily indicative of health in the life of the church. It's possible to achieve those things in ways that aren't spiritually healthy. And one thing that is certain about the church in Sardis 
is Jesus' words to her, you are dead. This is serious. This is significant. It is something that is not to be made light of. And a church that appears to have life, but who her, her Lord calls dead, is a church that at the very least has been deceived. The church doesn't realize it. And that's why they need this message from their Savior that they are dying or are dead. It's a church that is in many ways in name only. And we see this theme of name come up throughout this text. It is a church that is missing the vibrant work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that isn't to say that the Holy Spirit got lost or that he went missing or can't be found, but simply that the means of grace by which the Spirit typically moves and works have been abandoned and or replaced. Providentially and without any communication or planning on my part or Clayton's part, this introduction that I had written before I had my little mishap midweek, um, and I do want to take a moment and say thanks to Clayton for stepping in because it did happen midweek. Uh, it happened Wednesday night, and I didn't contact him until we went to the ER Thursday and uh, asked him to step in. So he really stepped in at the last minute. Thank you, Clayton, for doing that, and not just that week, but again the next week. But without us communicating any of this, the Spirit led Clayton to preach on the means of grace last week. So I got to delete a lot of my uh, introduction. Save us some time today, so we'll hopefully move a little bit faster. You guys have heard the introduction because he's already covered it. Uh, much of what I'd written. So uh, we'll save some time and move through that today. Let me just say this in summary for any who weren't here, that the means of grace is, well, first of all, it's, it's not a term that we see in Scripture. It's, sometimes people will say, that's not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word Trinity. And yet we see clearly the concept of the Trinity taught in Scripture. And so the means of grace is something that we see clearly taught in Scripture. It is simply the ordinary means through which God works, that is, His Word, the sacraments, and prayer. And they are both parts and the whole together. They're not intended to be separated. Uh, Word and sacrament are to go together. That's why we do it in the context of worship. And so we see that the word then, the preached word, explains what the sacrament demonstrates in action. And so we need that explanation. You might think that this somehow puts God in a box, that it limits what he can do, but that's not the case at all. God is all-powerful and all-wise and can do anything he pleases according to the counsel of his will. And yet we see throughout Scripture and indeed throughout history that there is an ordinary way through which God works, and that is the proclaiming or the preaching of his word, that people are called to saving faith in the cleansing blood of Jesus. And not only in a sense of justification, in the sense that when we come to saving faith, but in our sanctification as well. It is through the ordinary means of grace that we hear that gospel call on a regular basis. That we come, uh, we see the, the, the demonstration of the gospel in the sacraments, the cleansing aspect in the baptism. We see the body and blood broken and shed in the Lord's Supper, that atoning work put on display for us that we participate in and connect to through the Lord's Supper. And prayer is, of course, the means by which we respond, both in praise for what God has done, as well as in supplication, seeking Him for what we need in the journey. And so when churches begin to change or replace or diminish these ordinary means of grace in their practices, the Spirit's power is quenched in the life of the church. And this is almost certainly what was going on, at least in some regard, 
in the church in Sardis. Today we see this happen when churches put the preaching of the word and its power to the side, and they turn the sacraments into acts designed to get grace like a commodity, uh, like it's something that you can just take, almost like medicine, you know, you, there's no, um, I don't want to pick on, on, on any churches, but I'm, I'm not a fan of drive-through communion. Uh, and there are some churches that do this. There's no proclaiming of the word. There's no explanation. There's no prayer. There's no ministry. You drive through and pick up elements. And if you've ever done this, I'm, this is not a public shaming or a rebuke or anything. Just trying to, to explain this, that why, why we don't practice that, right? It, it, we, we don't treat the elements like that, as if you could drive through and pick up elements as if there's any magical grace in them, like medicine, that if we just can get it down, we'll get the grace of God. No, the ordinary means that God works in our lives is through all of these together as a whole, that we have the preaching of the Word, that we come together in prayer, that we worship together. And, for example, in communion, it is both communion with our Lord and communion together as one body. In baptism, we don't just go and witness somebody's baptism as if it's something that, like a birthday party that we stand apart from, but we're called to remember our baptism, aren't we? Right? We're, we're called to think back to what God has done in our lives. And so in a sense, we're connected to that act. And so it's something that the body does together. We see this happen when the word is not just separated, but is really no longer proclaimed in churches. Today, we see a lot of churches have talks on self-help and improvement and how to get the most out of this life. And they may attach a verse to it, maybe to back up their own idea, but there is no proclaiming of the word. There's no expounding of the word. There's no explanation of what the scriptures say. Instead, it's their own ideas that are simply supported with a, a verse that's tacked on maybe at the beginning. We see this happen when both the word and sacraments all but disappear and are replaced by programs and busyness, which give the appearance of life but have no power of the spirit. I think just with those three examples, you can probably connect and ha- of having seen that at some level. Uh, we have to be on guard against these things. It's a tendency, especially in our own day and age, to replace uh, the, 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 the means of grace with things like branding and marketing. Uh, a lot of churches put a lot more emphasis on that. And, and I think the desire is good to attract, to reach people, but we have to understand that there's no power in those things. The power is in through the means that God has established, through his word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. Ultimately, it's God's power. That's what the, sacra- or the, the word sacraments and prayer point us to. Is it's, we're looking to God. We're not looking for our own ideas, our own creativity, our own ingenuity. We are looking ultimately to God. And so while we don't know the exact details of what was happening in the Sardis church, we can certainly understand to the problem generally and especially to the solution. And the solution is a call to all of us to wake up to wake up, to be alert, to listen, to pay attention. And this is what Jesus says to the church. He begins with his greeting like he does in each of these messages to the church. And each of these messages has a description of himself, and all of them point back to the original vision that John had of Jesus uh, in, in the first chapter of Revelation that we looked at. And so here we see elements of that as well, where Jesus describes himself as the one with the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you weren't with us, or if you haven't studied Revelation, you read something like that, or at least I would read something like that and say, what in the world does that mean? Uh, what are the seven spirits? What are the seven stars? Well, as we have already seen, 
The seven stars point to the seven ministers or angels, the seven angels that were uh, associated with each church. And Jesus continually reminds them that they are in his hand. In other words, his church is his and will not be pulled out or plucked out of his hand. And he leads and guides and shepherds his church. The seven spirits, of course, are the, the pointing to the Holy Spirit. We looked at this in Revelation 1 verse 4. Just read a quick explanation from Douglas Kelly. He says, That does not mean that the Holy Spirit is seven persons. He is only one person, but seven is a biblical number for totality and fullness. And so this perfect biblical number seven is a symbolic way of saying everything you ever needed is in the Holy Spirit. It represents God's Spirit working and moving. And this is significant for the church at Sardis, not just in the sense that it needed revival but also that it was the Spirit is our source of power. The Spirit is our source of wisdom. The Spirit is our security. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so often when churches die or begin to burn out, it is because they neglect the power of the Spirit, and they try to do things in their own power, their own strength, or with their own effort. Or they fail to rest in his security or sealing protection, instead trying to take care of things themselves or protect themselves or somehow earn it. Power and protection. Those were significant things in the life of Sardis and its history. And it certainly would have uh, uh, come to the minds of the people there as they heard this message read, uh, whatever day that was, probably on a Sunday morning. See, Sardis had a fortress, an acropolis, that sat atop of the city that was surrounded by sheer cliffs on three sides, and it protected the fortress. Nobody could get up to it. As long as they guarded the one side that didn't have the cliffs, kind of the ramp up to it, they were safe. But as you might imagine, over the course of history, armies came and armies went, and eventually an army would come that would look up those sheer cliffs and say, we could do that. And it was the Persians who did just that. And they didn't have to send very many men up the cliffs because guess what? It wasn't guarded on those sides. And they sent only a handful and were able to take the entire city. And they made history in doing so, and yet that was a history that the church failed to heed. They needed the power and the protection of the Holy Spirit, and yet it seems that they had neglected his reality and presence among them. And so Jesus says to them, I know your works, You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, these descriptions are broad. They're general, describing the church. He says it is both dead and it is dying. And so it's a sense, and then in verse 4, he says there are those who have, that, that, that are walking in a manner worthy. They aren't dead. So this is a general description of the church. And, of course, we speak in similar ways when we maybe talk about the church at large or we describe a particular church. It doesn't mean that it's everyone in the church. There are some who have remained faithful. But generally speaking, the church is withering away. They're a church in name only or in reputation only of being alive. You think of an empty perfume bottle. You can open it up, and it still smells like perfume. But when you pour it, nothing comes out. And this is the image of what the church had become. Or you might think of some of the woes that Jesus spoke against the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew. Like this one, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The point is, 
it is possible for us to live our lives in a similar way where we have an outward appearance of conforming. We do everything to, you know, in front of the crowd, in front of people, to make people think that we walk in a manner worthy, but we have all kinds of deep, dark secrets and things that we do when no one else we think is looking, and we are full of uncleanness. This is hypocrisy. It's the definition of hypocrisy. And to some extent, we're all hypocrites. There's no one in this room who can escape that definition. We've all said some things and done another. And for all of you who are parents, you know that you can't get away with that, can you? Because there's little, you know, kids that have ridden in the back seat for years and years and years that suddenly when you want to teach them how to drive, then call you out on every mistake that you've ever made, right? But, but not just with driving, right? It's, 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 it's with issues like anger, and jealousy, and envy. And you don't have to be a parent to know this, that we're all hypocrites, And this is a call to us not to live hypocritically. The reputation that Jesus is pointing to is is in a sense saying, you're keeping all the traditions, you're keeping the customs, you're doing the outward stuff, the ceremonies, but inside, in your hearts, you're dead. This is equated in our own day to church attendance or church membership or involvement in activities. And the point is, is like the church in Sardis who was slumbering in unguarded lives, we too are prone to drifting off into spiritual sleepiness. And so we must hear the Savior's call to wake up. Wake up. And that's exactly what he says to them. In verses 2 and 3, he speaks to them with clarity and directness. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. There are five commands that we see here, and as American Christians, this is, this, we like this, right? It's little lists. If you're a note taker, this is helpful because you know what the, the notes need to be. Five things. Let's look at them. Wake up is the first one. The second one, strengthen what remains. We could say restore, wake up, restore, remember, third, Uh, Keep it or obey is fourth, and then fifth is repent. And I want to look at each of these briefly. The first is wake up. And one question is, if you're already asleep, how do you wake up? Ever been in a dream and wished you could wake up, (laughs) but you can't make yourself wake up? It's hard. Uh, We we can't do that. Unless you've set some kind of alarm, uh, there isn't a way. And so this is a warning. That as we drift off into sleepiness, we need things that would stir us out of that sleepiness. I remember when I was 16 years old, my sister's uh, fiancé had come to visit. And it was New Year's. It was around Christmas, New Year's time. And our youth group had had a lock-in, so we'd been up all night and on New Year's Eve. And then New Year's Day was football, so we stayed up all day. And so it was New Year's Day about midnight that I crawled into bed. I think I'd been awake about 36 hours. I was exhausted. And my sister comes into my bedroom, and I won't tell you what she calls me because it was a nickname. But anyway, it's an endearing nickname, Sether. That's what she called me. Uh, Would you drive back with Dan to New York? He is so tired. And Dan would always wait until the last minute. He would time it. So that he was, uh, he, he was a teaching assistant. He could time it when his class would start when he had to be there. So he had, of course, stayed as long as he could. And midnight was the last moment that he would be able to leave to drive straight through to get back to Rochester. 
And so I climbed in the car, and I told him, I said, I'll drive to get us. We lived out in the country. I said, I'll drive to get us out of the country. We'll get back on the interstate, and then you can take over, because I've been up for, for a long time. And that went on for two hours, and I tried to wake him up. And he said, oh, just one more hour, just one more hour. He did that to me for eight hours until eight in the morning. And so as we're going further north, we get into snow. And what would wake me up as I would fall asleep was the drifting off, falling asleep on the side of the road, the snow hitting underneath the car, thump, 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 and I would veer back on the road. That's what we need. We need things that will stir us and that will wake us up. And what are these things that stir us and wake us up? But the means of grace. It's the means of grace that stir our hearts, that move in us as we read Scripture devotionally, hopefully daily, that the Lord would use that to stir our hearts, thump, 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 to wake us up. As we hear a sermon and are convicted, or as we pray, I think of the prayer of the psalmist, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's that prayer for renewal, for alertness, that only the Lord can do. We pray for that. Or maybe it's as we take the Lord's Supper or witness a baptism, and again, we're called to remember or to consider our own Baptism, that the Lord uses these ordinary means of grace to stir us and to wake us up. The point is is that we need these, not just at a moment in time, but continually in our lives. And these then serve not only as those things that stir us when we get sleepy, but they also serve as as kind of alarm clocks to wake us up if we fall asleep, to, to shake us and bring us back. The second thing is strengthen what remains or restore. Jesus adds, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What are the works that he speaks of here? Well, when the crowds who followed Jesus asked him in John 6, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. It is a return to the gospel to believe in the one who has saved us. And this strengthening happens through the ordinary means of grace. The word, prayer, and sacraments all bring us back. If you think of that, everything that we do in worship is a call to the gospel. And folks, we need this. Not just those who are unbelievers need to hear the gospel call. Believers need to hear the gospel call because we do forget. We get sleepy. We, we, we get distracted. And we forget. That's why we need the third one. Remember, 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 remember. We hear it so often in Scripture because we so easily forget. And like waking up, remembering is hard if we fail to take hold of the ordinary means of grace. Why? Because there are a million plus voices speaking into our lives, all kinds of false hope and solution. The moment that you depart out of here today, the voices will begin. Things that this will make you happy, this will make you content, this will make you feel better, this will take the place of that. And Jesus is before us as our only hope and Savior. We need the ordinary means to receive the Spirit's power on a daily basis. Fourth, obey it or keep it. And this is a reminder that we're not to be hearers only. It's easy in a moment to be hearers, but we're to be doers also. It's like the children's song that many of us learn, Trust and Obey. I don't ever sing for you, and I will take this moment to apologize those on the live stream because we didn't have anybody today to run it. 
We have the mic on all the time, which means they heard both Clayton and me singing today. We normally turn that off when we're singing. So that's an apology. Clayton, I guarantee you I was much worse, and you can go back and watch if you want, uh, than, than they were. But that children's song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's that recalling to the gospel truth that we are to put our hope in Him and obey. And that obedience is something that doesn't come from a sense of, uh, it isn't this, uh, it's not meritorious. That, that, that true heartfelt obedience only flows from a realization of the love that God has shown for us in Christ Jesus. It makes me think of the famous Jack Miller quote. It's probably his most well-known. Uh, he said, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. But cheer up. You are more loved than you ever dared hope. I'll say it again because it's worth it. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, but cheer up. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. And isn't that what we need to be reminded of, both our sinfulness and our need for Christ in that love that Christ was sent to deal with that problem of our sin. And so the preached word and the sacraments and prayer all do this for us to cause us to wake up, to hear, to remember, and to obey. And then the fifth thing is repentance. Repent. Now you might think that this should have been first, but if you understand in this list, it's really almost a summary statement of everything that has been said up until this point. It's a description of what repentance looks like. The call to repentance really begins with a call to wake up, recognize your sin, right? And so as we look at this list, it it, it almost forms a cycle or a circle in the sense of this is what daily living looks like for us. Not just that we wake up in the morning, but that we wake up throughout the day. Have you ever experienced that where you're you're going along and you realize, I, I am mad and I am treating people awful as I'm walking through this grocery store and I'm a believer, Add to that, I'm a pastor. You know, that'll, that'll really get you when you're in the hardware store and you realize you're being ugly to people and saying things. And then you remember, not only are you one of Christ, but you're supposed to represent Him. We do this. We need to wake up. Remember who we are. And so we remember and then we hear and we take hold of and we turn from our sin and to our Savior. Now, it's important to, anytime we look at lists, you know how I feel about lists. I think they're helpful. But we, the little, the little Pharisee in all of our hearts can, can rear his ugly head, the little legalist that lives in every one of us, and turn this into some kind of uh, mechanism of our own. This is the means of God's grace, not the means of Seth's grace. Okay, So we don't turn this into this performance uh, that we merit God's love. Rather, these are good works that flow from the love that He has already shown us in sending Christ to die for us. It is what He has accomplished that moves us to obedience, not anything that our obedience accomplishes. Our status before God is not determined by our works. We are saved according to His mercy, by grace alone, through faith alone. And then it's from that great love that has been shown to us in mercy then that we desire to live in a way that pleases Him. And so we must obey. We're called to obey, even when we don't feel like it. You ever had days like that? You don't feel it? Maybe you don't feel like God's close, or you think that He's silent, that he's, he's He's not there. You think that you've been abandoned. We're still called to obey. 
We're called to walk by faith even when we think we have fallen beyond redemption. When we think that we cannot be loved anymore, that we're beyond His grasp, we're called to trust Him. Because we know the truth, and this is why it's this cyclical process of we, we restore, we come back, we remember the hope of the gospel. What? That God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So even though he doesn't feel like he's there, he is. Even though it feels like I've outsent his grace, I can't. And we remind ourselves of truth again and again. We cling to this hope that we are held by him and that nothing can pluck us out of his hand. We can't earn it. And we can't add to it. Jesus has done it all. In Christ, we are more loved than we ever dared hope. Following the commands, then, Jesus gives a warning. And this is a pattern that we've seen in each of these messages to the churches where he comes in with an exhortation or a warning. In this case, it's a, it is a warning that he will come as a surprise, as a thief, right? And you won't know when it's going to happen if you don't wake up. And we've seen the similar warnings in the other messages, and it's the same message here, that Jesus, as the good shepherd, will not let his bride slumber. He will come in his judgment. And that same judgment that sifts out the the chaff from the wheat is also the judgment that accomplishes the discipline that is a loving act of his rod of correction as the good shepherd that brings us back. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, we're not judged punitively because Jesus, when he said it is finished, guess what he meant? It's finished. We don't take on a punitive judgment. What God does in the life of his children is a correction of discipline. It's an act of love, just like we would do with our own children. Except he does it perfectly and he does it well. And so this is the warning then to them. In the final verses, Jesus notes, Not all have drifted into sleep. Some remain who are walking in a manner worthy of their calling. And he describes them as not having soiled their garments with the promise that they will walk with him in white, for they are worthy. The image of clothing is prominent throughout Scripture. Uh, You might think of some of Paul's epistles where he uses that language or even the put-off-and-put-on instruction that he uses has that image of clothing. But it's especially prominent in the book of Revelation. For example, in the 19th chapter, we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there is the refrain in verse 6 that says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give thanks, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And so then when we come back to verse 5 in our text where we read, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, it is speaking here of the purity of the person's status, that they have been made pure. And we see, again, the language that's in each of the messages of the one who conquers. And we've looked at this. Uh, scripture tells us, First John, who is the one who conquers? It is the one who puts their faith in Christ. So what he's saying here to the church at Sardis is that the substitutionary atonement on our behalf grants us the legal status of being pure, that we have been cleansed from all of our unrighteousness, and we stand worthy before God, not based on anything we've done, but on Christ's merit alone. And then Jesus adds of the one who overcomes by believing in him that he will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What a precious promise this is to us. That your name, if you are believing in Christ, your name is written permanently. 
There's a lot of history to books and records and so forth in the Jewish tradition and why this would have resonated so much with the hearers. But let me just say this, that our names being there, uh, this status that we have is significant because we know that it cannot be undone. We sing of this truth that's written in Isaiah 49, 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And this, I think it's in Christ alone that we, my, my, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. We sing of this when we sing that song. And so what a beautiful picture then of something that the prophet Isaiah spoke hundreds of years before Jesus' death, that through nail-scarred hands, our names would be permanently inscribed into the book of life. That's the picture that we have here. Jesus spoke to his followers, followers, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And so here is this image of hope in the gospel that is ours. It is hope that we need, not just at a point in time of our salvation, but it is hope that we need to cling to every day as we wake up, as we restore, remember, obey, and repent. A gospel dance that we move through step by step each day that God gives us. It isn't a formula in that we accomplish anything through doing this, but rather it is in doing this that we take hold of what Christ has accomplished for us. Understand that. That's one of the things that we have to remind ourselves over and over and over, at least I do, because that little legalist rises up and wants to take claim for the good works. I have to do this, or I did this, or I earned this. We don't do that. We take hold of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so don't minimize then the means of grace that he's given to do this, to take hold of this. We need this grace for the journey that we're on to get through this life. His word, the sacraments, prayer, all gracious gifts through which his spirit moves, giving us wisdom and power and protection in this life. But do hear me that if you are not trusting in Christ, if you are depending on your own efforts, if you are hoping that you have done just enough good to outweigh any of the bad that you have done or anything of that, that these gracious benefits are of no benefit to you. They're not commodities that you can lay claim of. They're not lucky charms. Your only hope is Christ. He is the only Savior of sinners. Look to Him and live. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that you may be delivered from sin and death. His salvation is free. We're called to come without money and buy what has been paid for by Him through faith in Him alone. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as we listen today, may we all be startled out of our slumber to wake up to the glorious grace and love of our God. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom 
and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your enduring kingdom that you have called us into to be a part of. You have made us your own and you have uh, equipped us with these means of grace for 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 the strength and the protection and the power and the wisdom in this life. Lord, we thank you for your Spirit's work and we pray that we would take hold of that which you have accomplished on our behalf, that we would take hold of the means that you have now given us to live in this life. Lord, protect us from relying on our own wisdom, our own strength, our own efforts. Cause us to wake up and to remember, to be restored, to obey and repent to all that is ours in Christ. Help us to see the glorious love of Him who loves us beyond imagination and beyond compare. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes more today, that we would see just a little greater glimpse than we've seen before of this incredible love that is ours in Christ, that we might be moved to live and walk in a manner worthy of the high calling to which we've been called. Only you can do this, Lord, and so we look to you in faith, and we pray all this for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.